Amen. That's on, right? Good. Praise the Lord. Well, actually tonight, I'm not going to preach. Uh, I am going to teach, and there's a difference, and you'll see it. Um, so I'm going to teach uh, about not only, oh gosh, that's not good. I know that's not good. I'm tall now. Help me out. Hook me up. In Jesus' name, glory to God on high. Thank you, Jesus. Yes. Yes, Lord. Now, that's too high. I'm, uh, you know, I'm just... Shucks. All right, that's just right. That's just okay. right. Okay, good. Praise God. No, I'm good. I'm good. Oh, wow. That's so deep, man. Am I, like, double podium worthy? double podium. Wow. Double anointing. That's serious. That's serious. That's glorious. There you go. I don't even know what to do with that. There you go. I guess I can I'm break. Your Bible like they're doing Thank some of those churches now. All right. <laughs> Read. <laughs> That's not going to happen. You can put up the PowerPoint or do I need? Okay, good, good. Okay, so we're going to look at Romans chapter 7. Oh, that's all high again. So Romans chapter 7. It's all right. It's, it's, it's good. I'm fine. Yep, it's probably closer to my eyes. I'm old and I need it there. Okay, so good. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 7 tonight. But what, what we're doing, we're really doing two things. We're, we're, hopefully we'll end up at a place by 9 o'clock, uh, yikes, where we actually have an interpretation of the text of, of Romans 7, particularly verses 15 through 25, that uh, is, is what I believe the correct uh, understanding of that passage from the scripture. But what we want to do as we walk through it is see how do we get there. And so really this is a, a, a session, a teaching session on exegesis and hermeneutics. So we'll talk about those words a little bit in a while, but we're looking at Romans chapter 7 tonight, but <clears throat> I want to just look through a couple things and then we'll read the text. Um, also, I'm going to need some people tonight to uh, read some verses, and so I, 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 want, I don't want to do army volunteers while I have to say, you just volunteered. I want people to raise their hand, and then, this is very important, use your outside voice when you read the scripture. Amen? So everyone can hear. Like my wife is a teacher. She's always telling the kids, use your inside voice. I'm telling you, use your outside voice so we can hear you when you read a scripture that we call on you for. So <clears throat> the interpretive cycle, when, whenever we come to a text, we start with the interpreter. Yes, that is a picture of me from several years ago. <laughs> um, but we not only start with, with ourselves as an interpreter of the text, we also start with our own presuppositions. Uh, that's not good or bad. It's just a reality, right? The, the, the sum total of what you maybe think you know about that text, your culture, your background, your, your knowledge base, all goes into, before you ever get to the text, that's inside of you, right? And then you come to the text. Now, that has a Bible there, but usually when we're talking about a text, we're talking about a small portion of the Bible, perhaps a verse, perhaps a chapter, usually a small section of scripture. So we come to that text and then we interpret it. Now, that's also a picture of me down there interpreting the text. Uh, if anyone of you have seen my wedding pictures, that kind of looks like me when I got married, except I had huge glasses. Um, so anyway, so we interpret. But that's all done and we'll talk a lot tonight about context. 
because that, that's going to be critical in proper interpretation. And then we go back after that, and it is a cycle. If we're doing Bible study well, we're in not just interpreting a text once, but there's a cycle of that. And we'll look at that tonight. So some basic definitions as we get started. And by the way, if, if anyone wants this PowerPoint, I think it will be available on the website and on Facebook, and you can download it. So you don't have to try to write 8 million things. If you wanted to write them, you don't have to. So basic definitions <coughs> to start with. First of all, uh, exegesis, what is it? It is the systematic process of arriving at a correct understanding, uh, correct understanding of the meaning of a particular text. So it's systematic. There's a procedure to it. And it is arriving at the correct understanding, not just any understanding. One of the things that drives me crazy is when people get together for Bible study and talk about, well, what it means to me is, I really don't care what it means to you. And I hope you don't care what it means to me. What we care about is what does it mean. So exegesis is attempting to find out exactly what the text means. And it means something particular. So that's from, a, a, it's a Greek word, uh, compound word, ex is a preposition, means out of, and then agis or agin, it means to lead or to draw. So when we talk about exegesis, it, the, the word is to draw out of the text what is already in there. And sometimes you may hear the word eisegesis, and we all do it sometimes, but eisegesis the preposition ice is into, so it is, it is reading into the Scripture something that is not there. And that's something that whenever we come to the Scripture, we've got to be very careful about doing that. And sometimes even as, as Christians who have a good understanding of doctrine, what, what can happen if we're not careful is we have our pet doctrines and we read that into everything else, Right? So someone says, well, I'm a grace guy. I, I love the grace of God. And we're reading a, 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 a scripture on the wrath of God and just saying, I just see grace right there. Here's how grace, you know. And, and it, not, not that grace isn't there in any way, but sometimes we need to be careful about reading into a particular scripture. What does that scripture mean? So we want to be careful with that. So let's go to the text, Romans chapter 7. Um, and we're going to read these verses, 15 <clears throat> through uh, 25, and I need two volunteers, 15 to 20, who wants to get that for us in their outside voice? I see that hand, Josh, and then 21 through 25, where are we? We're right here. Okay, so stand up, read it nice and loud, all right? Waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Mm. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Mm. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. I'm going to pray real briefly as we get into this. Father, we do ask for you to lead us and guide us through this. And Lord, increase our understanding of this text and also of how to come to your word rightly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, so we want to look at this text. Anyone read this text before? You've heard this text before? Pretty familiar text in a lot of ways. Let me just ask some of you, like, uh, how have, what are some of the imp- interpretations you've heard of this text in the past? Just a couple people. Two people. What's a basic interpretation of that text? Yes, Christian. My interpretation was... Um, it's okay. What it means to me was... Okay, help me now. <laughs> so it's, it's not really me, but it's the sin that's living in me that's actually doing these things that I'm really trying not to do. Type thing. But that was my interpretation. So it's okay, like, kind of cool. What does it mean to you, Josh? Right. So, so th- those are common interpretations. Let's look at four interpretations. We're really going to look at three, and we'll develop the fourth one in the class tonight. So, uh, first of all, one, the struggle of a non-Christian against sin. Some people have seen this. Th- this is a non-Christian struggling here. We're going to look at each one of these and, and see the validity or uh, not the validity of them. Secondly, Paul's own personal struggle in sanctification. He's using I over and over again. So we'll look at that. Is that, is that what's going on here? Is Paul giving us a little autobiography? Number three, and this is what basically I've heard, it's a, a pattern of struggle that's normal for most Christians, right? So if, if that's your interpretation and you're in the middle of struggling with sin, like we've probably all been here, and we go to Romans chapter 7, how, how do you feel uh, when, when you're struggling and consistently failing in sin and you come to R- Romans 7, what's one way that that makes you feel? Just one person, real quick. Anybody? Defeated. What else? Condemned. Oh, gosh. Who, who said good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Why good? Because you feel like what you're struggling with is normal to you. Yeah, I mean, it's in the Bible. Uh, Paul, Paul dealt with the same thing, right? So one of my contentions is uh, that, that that interpretation is a very dangerous interpretation for believers. Like this is the normal expected reality of the Christian life. So here I am failing miserably daily in my struggle with sin. But you know what? Thank you, Jesus. I'm in good company. I'm all right. Thank you, Jesus. So that, that is why I'm so passionate about uh, getting uh, this, this interpretation right. And also because I see that interpretation over and over again, many times, even in books and from people that I highly respect and, and I love them. And they'll talk about Romans 7. I'm like, why did you have to go there? You just messed up the book for me. Didn't mess up the whole book. But there's one book I give out a lot of times to guys and I have to warn them about page 26. Like, don't skip that page. I don't like that page. So <clears throat> let's look at the first couple of views here. So ruling out, we're just going to rule out view one real quick. Exegetical principles. So we'll look at some principles here. 
Interpret hard to understand passages in light of plain passages. Very basic. So the weight of clear scriptural teaching informs difficult passages. Most of the Bible is, we can read fairly simply and understand much of the Bible, but there are hard things in the Bible. Amen? Peter said some of the stuff Paul wrote is hard to understand. He might have been talking about Romans 7. I don't know. But he says some of this is hard to understand, right? So there are some things that are harder. We need to read them in light of, of plain scriptural teaching. So some of the things in this passage, the person spoken of in the passage desires to honor God. The person desires to honor God. So, um, and if you look at all those verses, we're not going to look at all of that, but look at verse 22 in particular, because each one of them talks about desiring to honor God, wanting to do what's right, wanting to do what's good. But in verse 22 specifically, he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So that, that first, the first interpretation was, this is a struggle of a non-Christian against sin. Now, I, I can't find anywhere in the Bible that a non-believer is saying I, I, that in my inner being, in my inner man, I desire to do the will of God, right? As a matter of fact, and I have some scriptures down there, we're not going to look at them for the sake of time, but we see in the Psalms over and over again, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about it as well. The language of a believer is that their inner man delights in God and in his law. That, nowhere do we see that of an unbeliever. So I believe that that just rules out that first interpretation. Can't be an unbeliever. So the second view that we looked at, the second view is this is Paul's own struggle with sanctification. A little, little bit more difficult because there's some reasons that would favor this. Number one, Paul uses the personal pronoun I throughout the whole passage. So he's saying I, I, I. If I said I got on the bus today and I went to Whole Foods and I bought some groceries and then I went home and, and I said, but, but I'm not talking about me, you'd say that's just ludicrous. That doesn't make any sense. You said I, I, I. Paul is saying I in this passage. So the plain meaning of the text we might say is that it would favor that this is Paul talking about himself. And then lastly here, Paul does this sometimes in other passages where he talks about his own sinfulness. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he calls himself the chief of sinners, right? So we see Paul in some other places in the New Testament talking about himself and his struggle with sin. Not in an extended way like this necessarily, and we'll see it's not like this, but he does talk about that. So another exegetical principle here. Look at how a specific author consistently deals with a subject or doctrine. If, there, if there's a significant discrepancy, you need to ask yourself, what's going on here? So a lot of times what people miss is we just look at different scriptures all over the place, and, and sometimes we need to do that, but often we need to look at that author. We need to look at, at, at the context near and the context far in that author, and then we can look at other scripture as well to see the consistency of it, but we need to look at what that author has to say. So there's some reasons based on that not to favor this. The character presented here is inconsistent with how Paul presents himself. Someone look up Philippians 3. Who's got Philippians 3 for me? Do I see that hand? Where is that hand? 
Glory, glory. We need a hand for Philippians 3. I see that hand. Kenny. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll just deal with Philippians chapter 3 right now. So go Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Okay, <clears throat> and actually, um, you know, in the beginning of verse 12 there, he says, he says, I haven't already obtained it, I'm not perfect, but I am pressing on towards the goal. You see a person here who is purposeful, who is, is making progress, and he says, I'm pressing on in verse 14 toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, so much so that if you go down to verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In, in, in several places in Paul's epistles, he, he talks about his own walk and he says, Look at what I do. Follow me, he says in another place, as I follow Christ. C could the writer of or could the person in uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25 say, look at me, follow me, as I, look, what, look what I'm doing right here in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 and following, and do what I do, right? That, that's inconsistent with the Paul that we see in the rest of the New Testament. It's just not consistent with that at all. It's not the character that we see of him. And, and, and the, the even more weighty consideration that we'll look at in some depth in a few minutes is that the text itself presents a stunning contradiction of what he said immediately before in chapter 6 and in chapter 8. So if you're looking at the immediate context around chapter 7, you get an extremely different picture, and we'll look at that in some depth. So I would rule out verse 2 based on those insights. The general information about Paul makes it untenable. The immediate context weighs against it, and also figures of speech. So Paul is using the I rhetorically. Rabbis did that sometimes in New Testament times, and we do that sometimes as well, right? We can write, and we can write in first person, but we're writing about a group, not necessarily about ourselves. It's a rhetorical device. So whenever we come to Scripture, we need to look for rhetorical devices, we need to look for idioms, we need to look uh, for figures of speech, all of these things to understand Scripture well. If we say, well, I just want the plain meaning of the text. I, ju I just want the plain meaning of the text. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if, if, brothers, you know, if you lust, uh, you, you need to gouge out your right eye. <laughs> we need to have a lot of left-eyed brothers... We could call you all left eyes, as a matter of fact, or, or and then, you know, cut off your, cut off your right hand. So, so what's going on there? Obviously, it's a rhetorical device. Obviously, it's a figure of speech, and the scripture is filled with that, and we have to look at that and not just say, well, it just means what it, exactly what it says. Yes, it does, but what is it saying? Uh, Isaiah says, the trees of the fields will clap their hands. 
Amen? I've never seen a tree with hands. And I don't think I'm going to see one either, right? So, so he's using figurative poetic language. We need to look at that in a text. So the principle is there. The meaning of the text that we're looking at is, now this is the critical piece. What is the meaning of the text? It is the author's intended meaning to the original audience. That's what the meaning of a biblical text is. So if you're reading Exodus that Moses wrote, we're bridging a gap of some 3,500 years. There's a lot of things we may need to understand to, to, to get as much as we can out of that text. When we're looking at the New Testament, we have a 2,000-year-old document. So we just can't make up in the New Testament, well, I think Pharisees mean this. Or I think this means that. No, we've got to look at, well, what does that mean? Who were those people? What was, what was going on culturally that Paul could say that or that Jesus would say this? So there are things about uh, the, the context that we need to understand so that we can find out what did the author mean when he wrote this to the original audience. That is your task in trying to exegete uh, Scripture. That's always your task. So we come we rule out one, we rule out two, and now let's look at three. Um, number three is the passage represents a pattern of struggle that is normal for most Christians. That's what I heard, that, that in one way or another, from Christian and Josh, and maybe for many of you, that you, you've struggled with in this passage at times, or that it's been comforting to you in this, in this passage. And that, that's why it's, it's such a dangerous passage to misunderstand. Because you see these things up here. First of all, it's a widely used interpretation. It tends to comfort people in their sin and to consider that they're largely powerless to overcome sin. I'm not going to make it anyway. I mean, I'm a slave of sin. He says it over and over again. It's a depressing passage if you think that this is what God has for you in your life of victory in Jesus. Amen. It's, that's depressing. It leaves believers with a low expectation of what sanctification or holiness will actually look like. What do you do with all the scriptures that call us to sanctification and, and to holiness without which the writer of Hebrews says, no one will see God? Is that the holiness that's in uh, this, this, these verses? There's nothing I can do about it? I'm a slave of sin. No matter what I want to do, I can't do it. What I don't want to do, I end up doing anyway. Is that it? Is that it, really? You're saved? Is that what saved is? Gosh, I hope not. I hope that's not what saved is. So, and, and this last one, this last one is very real. It's damnable. It's the fact that many people who aren't converted, they don't even know Christ, but, but they could be in, in, in an environment, in a church that, that, that teaches this, as normal for Christian living. So as long as you confess, as long as you can say these you know, three points from the Romans road or four points, if you can say that, if you quote unquote know that, there doesn't need to be any fruit in your life. Why would there be fruit in your life? I mean, look at Paul. There wasn't fruit in his life. Look, 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 look at this passage and you struggle, I struggle, we all struggle. Wow, it's tough. And many people are never presented the gospel rightly because this is all screwed up. This is all screwed up. So that's why like, I'm passionate about this passage in particular, but in, in rightly dividing the Bible. 
When we get it wrong, we mess ourselves up. And if we're teaching anyone else, and we are, all of you are, you're teaching people who are watching your life. That's why Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine, right? But for all of us, whether you're a preacher or not, unbelieving friends and family members, they're looking at you, and what are they learning? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. So that, that's why we want to make sure that we get this passage right. So here's a couple of principles here. First, context is the most important factor in determining the meaning of the text. And we'll look at several layers of what we mean when we say context. Next, overemphasis on the micro level of exegesis. Doing word studies. Everything's a word study. You ever read something and, and you know, it's, it's explaining the text in great detail. It's doing word studies. And by the time you end up reading it, it's like, that's nothing at all what it looks like in my Bible. I mean, I just learned that light actually means darkness, and I learned that, you know, this means that. You get, you get a million word studies, and sometimes people do word studies very badly. They do something called diachronic word studies, where I look at the, the, what the word meant originally, right? That has absolutely nothing to do with what it means at the time of a, in a particular writing and in a particular context. So we can do really bad word studies, right? Uh, so watch out for that kind of thing. Um, we, we can just look at a phrase or at a verse. Uh, verses were, were not put in the Bible until the 16th century. This, so 1,600 years, no one talked about verse 16 because there wasn't a verse 16. Until the 13th century, there weren't chapters. So it was just... Paul's letter to the Romans, blah, splat out. There it is. There it is. There's the whole John. Yes, I said John. So it's all right there. Like, like you need to look up. It, it, it's over here, right? But, but we have done that. It, is, it helps us. I know it's, I, I thank God that I have chapters, I have verses. But the problem of that for many is now we think I can study a verse and know what it means. I dare you to pick up a novel, turn to page 237, go into the fourth paragraph and look at the second sentence and tell me what that means. You're not going to have a clue because you don't know the characters, you don't know what's going on, you don't know the context. You don't know what it means. And that's what we do with the Bible. When we just pick out a verse and say, nah, that's what it means to me. I don't care what it means to you. Did I say that before? I said that before. So we need to not just look at micro-level exegesis, but we need to look at macro-level exegesis, the big picture. We need to step back and look at the big picture, the genre of the Scripture. If you want to read the book of Revelation as if it's his, uh, historic, it, it, it's, it, the, in the same way that you'd read Genesis uh, 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 12 through 17 about Abraham, you're going to be in trouble real quick because it's a whole different form of scripture. If you want to read the Psalms in the way uh, that you would read the epistles, you're going to get all messed up. Different forms, different genres, culture, uh, meaning of the chapter. So you're not just looking at a verse or even just at a small portion, but look at the chapter, look at the book, look at the author, look at the Bible. So we're looking at at layers of context. 
Uh, next, exegetical principle for difficult passage, a view of the broader context is even more important. Sometimes you can take a small uh, portion of scripture, it's, it's self-explanatory, know what it means, but when you get into harder to understand passages, you need to look at a broader and broader context. If, and if you want to, even for that, that, that scripture that you feel like, I could just look at these couple verses and I really got it, if you look at the broader context, you're going to get a deeper and richer meaning as well. You'll see why is this here? Why is this here? I, I, I know anyone who preaches from narrative, when you're preaching a particular narrative, one of the first things you have to do is look at the flow of the whole narrative. Why did Jesus decide to talk about this now? Or why did John or Mark tell this particular story now? Where is it in the flow of the narrative? So you're looking at the larger context. So let's look at the larger context of the book of Romans. So uh, first of all, it was written by Paul, probably in late 56 or 57 AD from Corinth. And we can get the, if you have a study Bible, you can get that in a second, right? It's easy to get that information. The letter's probably sent by Phoebe, a deaconess traveling to Rome. You see that in uh, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Isn't that something? Uh, Romans is probably, not probably, it is the most thorough, exegetical, uh, uh, a doctrinal letter that Paul ever wrote. It's the one that theologians and ministers and preachers have come back to over and over again. And he gave it to Phoebe. He gave it to a woman and said, make sure this gets to Rome. He probably didn't give it to a guy because he, he might have been somewhere else. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kidding about that. But he gave it to Phoebe and she takes it to Rome. That, that's probably, I'm not 100% sure on that, but if you look at the context, it looks like that. So this is the most comprehensive and systematic of all of Paul's epistles. And then Paul, and Romans presents a systematic explanation of salvation in the first 11 chapters, and then gets into some real practical uh, and specific application in the latter chapters. So that's, a, that's some of the broad context. Now, why, was, why did Paul write Romans in the first place? It's interesting because you see in, in chapter 15, he says, I'm getting ready to come to Rome. So, like, I'm getting ready to go there. I, I can just tell you this stuff. Why write the, your longest letter? Why write this theological treatise if you're getting ready to go to Rome in the first place? Three possibilities here. Number one, he would be passing through there on his way to Spain. He says that in verse 24, chapter 15. He says, I'm on my way to Spain, but I'm going to stop and chill with y'all for a little while. That's what it means in the Greek. He says, I'm going to chill with y'all for a little bit. So he's going to go uh, through Rome, stay with them a little while. Um, secondly, the well, well and, and with that, he probably wants to set up Rome as a hub for his ministry in in. I wanted to put a map up, I forgot to do it, but in the, in the western region. He had a hub of ministry from Antioch in the east, and then Rome would be the perfect place to set that up in the west, okay? Secondly, the possibility that he might not make it to Rome. That's a very real possibility if you read the end of Romans, uh, and if you read anything about Paul's life, right? So he needs to be delivered from unbelievers. He tells them, that to pray that he would be delivered from unbelievers at the end of chapter 15. There's a, a plot against his life 
from the Jews at Corinth in Acts 20, and he's getting warnings from the Holy Spirit about uh, being taken captive and all these things that could happen to him. So there's all this danger he's living with, and so he might not get to Rome, so I'm going to write something that really lays out my life and doctrine. By this time, he's been walking with Jesus for 20 years. So he, he has walked with him for a while, and so he's laying out what he has, has learned from the Lord over these years. And thirdly, this is, this is part of the purpose of the epistles. You can see it throughout the epistle, tension between Jews and Gentiles in the church and needing to understand how does the gospel rightly apply. So there's problems going on in the church. So that, that's kind of the, the broad overview of the context. But now we're going to look um, at the context in a, in a closer way. So first of all, an outline of the book. When you come to any passage, it's helpful to look at where does this fit, why is this here. And so it's very helpful to either look at an outline and or even more helpful to develop your own outline and then compare it against something else and see am I missing this or am am I pretty much on it. So uh, outline the book or section, see how it advances the argument of the book. So here's a, like a real basic general outline. That's, that's like as basic as you can get, right? But, but this is what's going on in the book of Romans. The first three chapters basically are laying out the need for salvation. There is universal unrighteousness. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, we are all shut up under sin. And, and he lays out that case in those first three chapters and makes it really real. Let's look at the, in the middle of the third chapter, verse 20, I think I want to look at. Third chapter and verse verse 20 as he's finishing up his argument on the unrighteousness of all mankind, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's going back to this idea of the law. He says, by the law, no one will be justified because the law brings the knowledge of sin. And and that's where he ends his argument about the universal unrighteousness of mankind and their need for salvation. Starting in verse 21 there and going through chapter 5, He's going to talk about the way of salvation. There's one way. You're all shut up under sin, but the way of salvation is righteousness that is given to you by another. It's imputed righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, and he he gives you his righteousness. He's the righteous one. You're unrighteous, you have, and God is holy, and so if you're going to stand before him, you need to stand before him righteous. How can we do that? Jesus Christ died to give you his perfect righteousness. And he builds that case, and he talks about Abraham being justified not by his works, but by his faith, and he lays out this case in chapters 3 through 5. Let's look at the end of chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, I'll start at verse 20. He says, now the law came, he's talking about the law again, to increase the trespass. 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting here again, as he gets to the end of this passage about the way of salvation, he's dealing with the law again. He says the law comes in, the law did not come to make you righteous. The law reveals the righteousness of God and it increases our trespasses and reveals to us how much we need a savior. That's what the law does. And so at the end of this, this, this argument and this, this passage on the way of salvation, again, he says the law comes and, and increases the trespass, but the good news is this, where, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. That's good news. That's good news. And so in chapters 6 through 8, Paul is now going to talk about the effect of salvation. Salvation by grace imparted righteousness. So uh, God never meant in salvation just to get you a, give you a get out of hell free card. Live like the devil, but you got your card in your back pocket. And, I, and when that day comes, when that great and mighty day comes, I got my card. I'm good. That's not what salvation is. So it's imputed to us. We get what we don't deserve. I didn't live it perfectly. But it's also imparted to us in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit that we'll see it develop in chapters 6 through 8. So he's going to talk about the effect that salvation has on believers. It makes a difference. It, it, it makes us not only uh, uh, positionally before God holy ones, but it progressively makes us holy. That's God's purpose. Because he wants to be glorified, right? He wants to be glorified and be glorified through a people that is becoming more and more like himself. So some exegetical principles from this. Examine the section of the text to determine what question, questions it's attempting to answer. So at the end of verse, uh, chapter 5, um, Paul demonstrates that our behavior or works contribute nothing to our justification, Right? Zero. Your works contribute as much to your uh, uh, justification, that is being declared not built, guilty by God. They, they, they add as much to that as they add to the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. Can you say, well, the sun exists because I was really, really good yesterday and I did my devotions? I don't think that's going to make your creation happen, right? Your, your good works has as much to do with your justification as 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 creation of, of all that is. So it has nothing to do with it. But it raises the question, doesn't it, that Paul gets to in Romans 6, at the beginning of Romans 6. So if you look at that text, what shall we say then? Okay, sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? That's a natural question that's asked from that text. Another way to put it is, well, if that's the case, then why bother trying? I mean, I might as well live like hell and let grace really abound. You know, I might as well just burn it down or I, I got to tell you, this, this is a pet peeve of mine. I know I'm old. I know I'm a little older than a lot of people in this room, but 
Might as well just turn it up. I don't like that phrase, man. It drives me crazy. Uh, but, but anyway, so uh, I know some of you like the phrase, and I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at nobody. But uh, sometimes it gets on my last nerve. But anyway, so why bother? That's the question in Romans 6.1. Why bother? If, if sin is going to abound and grace abounds more, why not sin? It's a very logical question. The second question in Romans 6, 2, he says, and, and first he says, by no means or no way or how can that be? But how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the question. How can, if we died to sin, how is it that we can still live in it? And so he's going to answer that in the rest of chapter 6. He's going to take a break and, and, and deal with some things in chapter 7 that we'll look at. And then he's going to really give us the, actually how to do that in chapter 8. So those are the questions that are critical for the text. So now let's look. Now we're going to do some exegetical work here as we look at the text more closely. So uh, we're, we're outlining these chapters, uh, 6 through 8. So the first part of chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and really 1 through 14, uh, tells us that sin cannot dominate or master you because you're united to the resurrected Christ. Right? He, he says, if you read the verses, like, how can we, uh, who died to sin, still live in it? That's, that's one question he asks. He says, if, if we were buried with Christ in his baptism... And he was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father so that we might have newness of life. How is it that we can still live in sin? We were raised with Jesus. Right. We're united with him. We, we are united with Jesus Christ. And so we are made alive from the dead in Christ. So this is what he's saying in that first part. And then, very important words, verses 12 through 14, he says, don't let sin reign. Look at verse 12. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your bodies. That, that is an imperative. That is a command. Now, if, if that's the case, he can say, don't let sin reign in your bodies, then what are we going to do with the passage in Romans 7, where he says, I can't help it. That's what he's saying in Romans 7, right? I can't help it. The devil made me do it. That's what he's saying in Romans chapter 7. But, but right here he's saying, don't let it rain. Inconsistent with what we read in Romans chapter 7. Doesn't make sense to that. So he says, since or because you are uh, not under law but under grace. He's bringing back in uh, this question of law and grace. Um, so look at the end of verse 14, or verse 14. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. It won't have dominion. The word there uh, is, is a verbal form of the word that we use for kurios or Lord, right? So sin will not be your Lord. Sin will not be your master. Sin will not have dominion over you. He says, it, it, it won't and it can't, believer. Sin won't have dominion over you. So that's the first part of, of Romans 6. And then we go into the next part, starting at verse 15. Grace, not law, allows 
for a choice of masters. So because we are in grace now, not in law, he says, you've got to choose a master. Now you can choose what or who will master you. You need to make a choice, but you will have a master. You, will, you can't not have a master. You're going to have a master. Who's it going to be? So look, look at verse 18. Verse 18. He says, um, And having been set free from sin, having, have become, and, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Having been set free from sin. That now, now, you don't have to know Greek to get this. In the Greek, that's, that's in the, it's a passive voice, but so it is in the English translation. Having been set free from sin. In other words, you did not set yourself free from sin. You were set free by another. This happened to you. You didn't make it happen. But this is part of the gift that God gave you in the work of Jesus Christ. You have been set free free from sin. So, so this is the passive uh, 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 taking in of the righteousness and the power of God through his spirit, having been set free. So believers are to become slaves of obedience and righteousness because we have been set free and have become slaves. Again, that's passive. We can see also in verses six and seven, look at verse six. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Again, that's passive. We didn't crucify ourselves with Jesus, but we were crucified with him. That's the work of God. And in verse 7, he says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Again, that same phrase that we just saw. So we've been set free. That's, the, that's passive on our part, but it's active on God's part. But then we get to verse 19. In verse 19, he says, uh, these words, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. That's active on your part. You've been set free. God did that. But now he says, because that happened, now you've got a responsibility. Now you present your members as slaves of righteousness. You do that. I've given you the power and the ability and the responsibility as believers to do that. You're a new person. You've changed. God has given you new life. You've been born again. So the, 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 act, the passive is what God has done for us and to us, but then actively he says, now that I've done this, you carry this out. You do this. Okay, so then the last part of verse uh, or of chapter six in verses twenty through twenty-three, justification, being set free from sin, necessarily leads to being a slave of God, producing sanctification or holiness. Hagiosmos is the word. It's the same word that when we talk about saints, you're a saint. Hagios is that word. So uh, it means holy ones. But look at the connection at the end of verse in verse twenty-two here. He says, but now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Look at that connection between sanctification, a fruitful, changed life, 
One who is being, we'll read later, and we're not going to read it today, but in Romans chapter 8, one who is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He says, because you're being made holy and there's fruit in your life, that leads to eternal life. Right? He's not saying you do these things in order to get eternal life, but he says, if God has imparted this life to you, you will change and you will present your members to God because you have the power to do so by the grace and the power of God. So look at that connection. So now that gets us, and I'll be a little bit over tonight, but not too much, into chapter 7, finally, what we said we were going to study. Okay, that's what we've been studying all along, right? You've got to do the background to understand it. So the first six verses are really interesting. We're not going to get into it much, but he demonstrates the inability of the law to help us live righteously. You've died to the law and now belong to another. Only by dying to the law can we serve in the new way of the Spirit, he says at the end of verse 6. The only place in Romans chapter 7 that the Spirit is mentioned. So when we go on to the rest of this chapter and Paul's talking about, I can't do what I want to do, I don't do what, what, whatever. When he's talking about all this crazy stuff, He's saying, I'm so messed up, there's no Holy Ghost in there at all, right? So in the beginning, he's giving you an analogy of marriage and saying, and I know I've preached on this before, but it's like you've been married to the law, and the law is your husband, and so the law is a husband, the law is always right, it's never wrong, right? So every time you're wrong, it lets you know you're wrong. How would you like that, wife? That would not be a very good husband. You know, you're wrong. Every little thing that you're wrong about, your husband lets you know. And he's always right. Like, I know I try to do that sometimes. It doesn't work well with my wife. But, um, but a lot of times I'm wrong. But the law is never wrong. It's always right. But not only does it point out your every possible sin, but also it does absolutely nothing to help you overcome that sin. He said, this is, if, if, if your righteousness is from the law, this is what the law is going to do for you. It's going to point out every sin. But it won't lift a finger to help you in that sin. Now, here's the bad news with that husband. That husband, because he says if, you get, if, if the husband dies, you're free, right? You can marry someone else. But here's the bad news. The law is not going to die. The, the, law, the law is revealing the righteousness of God. It's not going to die. It's not going to go away, Right? So that's a problem, but here's good news. Look here. Um, he says, but if her husband dies, she's free from that law. I'm sorry, I'm in the middle of verse 3. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. But then he says in verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. See, the, the law didn't die, but you died. So if you're married, if you die, if you're born again some kind of way, now you can marry someone else. He said, you were married to the law. The law didn't die, but you died. And now you can get a new husband. The law was not a very good husband. It wasn't helping you to change. It wasn't helping you to be transformed. It wasn't helping you to do anything good to honor God. But there's a new husband, and this husband's name is Grace. That's a weird name for a husband, by the way. Don't marry a man named Grace. But, but the husband now is the grace of Almighty God. 
That's the one now we come to. But, but now what he's going to do in the rest of chapter 7 is, is draw out for us what it looks like to try to be sanctified by the works of the law. How can I be transformed by the works of the law? So 7 through 14, the purpose of the law is given to demonstrate sinfulness. The good law, the law's good, reveals the bad, sinful, and weak flesh. The Holy Spirit is mentioned zero times in verses 7 through 25. So as Paul is doing all this wrestle, there's no Holy Ghost that he's talking about at all. So in, in, in the verses that we came to, verses 15 through 20 and through 25, the plight of an awakened believer trying to be made holy by the law. That's what's going on here. What does it look like trying to be sanctified by living according to the law? A desire to do good meets with the weakness of our flesh. Verse 18 in this text in ESV, it, it, it talks about our flesh. It's, it's the Greek word sarx. In the NIV, it translates it as our sinful nature. It's talking not, not about your, your flesh in terms of your skin and your bones, but it's talking about the nature that we have as fallen sinners before God. It said this is weak, and God's plan was never to revive your flesh and make it better. I've been a Christian for 33 years, something like that. Maybe it's more than that. 35 years, actually. Uh, my flesh is as bad today as it was the day I got saved. My flesh is not getting better. What is happening, though, is the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of me, and he transforms me, and he allows me to present my members before him and receive the power of God to live for him. My flesh is as corrupt as it ever was. It doesn't get better. If, if you're serious about the Lord, you know I'm telling the truth. Your flesh doesn't get better. It still loves itself. It wants what it wants. It wants it when it wants. It wants it how it wants. It's selfish. That's the truth of your flesh. And that's what he's getting at in those verses <coughs> about just how weak our flesh is. So um, a desire to do good meets with the weakness of the flesh. Um, not the way of the Spirit that we saw in verse 6 and in all of chapter 8. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. So at the end of these verses, this is the climax that demonstrates the inadequacy of the law as a means of salvation. The law of sin, he says, that dwells in my members reveals the inability to serve God due to the weakness of the flesh. So this is what is happening in these verses. So we'll just look at a couple more things here as we close. That we need to look at Romans 8 if we're going to understand Romans 7 in the context of the argument that Paul is making. So in Romans 8, 1 through 39, the role of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Verse 1, he says, There, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life. This isn't the law that he was talking about before. This is a new law. It's the law of the Holy Spirit. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from that old law, the law of sin and death. See, there's a new sheriff in town, and it's the law of spirit and life in Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who comes. So in, in, in chapter 8, he's going to 
come back really to what he said in, in chapter uh, uh, 6. He says, present yourselves. Don't allow sin to have dominion over you. He's going to tell you how to do that now. In chapter 7, he told you how not to do it. So now he's going to tell you how to do it. You do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So at the very beginning, he puts a dagger in the law as a means of salvation and demonstrates that the way of the Holy Spirit, mentioned 15 times in verses 2 through 16, verses 1 through 17 in particular are the antithesis of what you saw in Romans chapter 7. He says, not only should you present yourselves present your members to God, but here's how you do it. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So much so, he says in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh. Remember Paul? Remember the illustration in chapter 7. I'm in the flesh. The flesh is weak. He said, but you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. See? People say, well, you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. That's like crazy. That's so foolish. If you're a Christian, if you're truly born again, you have the Spirit of God. Because if he doesn't dwell in you, he says, you're not even in a family. So the good news to believers is he does dwell in you. He does dwell in you. So we need to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. The way of sanctification, the way of actually seeing Christ's righteousness born out in the way we live day to day is by yielding ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what God wants to do. We can relate many times to Romans chapter 7 and that, that wrestle some, I can relate to that sometimes and, and maybe feel comforted by it, but the reality is when I'm wrestling like that, what Scripture is telling me, I'm wrestling that way because I'm trying to get righteous, I'm trying to get sanctified by legalism. I'm trying to make rules and regulations so that I can step up and say, God, look what I did. But the way of the Spirit never says, look what I did. It always says, look what he did. Look what he did. And, and then thank God of what he's doing in me by his spirit. No credit for me, all credit to God, right? So, so this is the reality of what's going on in these verses. Just a couple things to, to finish up here. The section demonstrates the futility of attempting to be sanctified or live in righteousness by following the law. I'm gonna get to, I want to get to one more thing. Um, we went back to our four views the last one, this is what I would put on as, as the right view of Romans chapter 7. The futility of a Christian attempting to be sanctified by law and flesh rather than by grace and spirit. That's what's being taught in those verses. So, a couple things in closing. What is our task as exegetes of Scripture? It is finding the author's intended meaning. Each text has one specific meaning. Not what it means to me, but what, is, what the author is communicating here. Secondly, there may, be more than, uh, there may be one or more general principles. We can find principles from Scripture, right? And there, there's often many applications. But don't confuse principles and applications with meaning. We need to get the meaning right 
and then we can derive the right principles and applications. So last thing here tonight, then, is just some principles from all of this that we looked at. Each Bible passage has only one meaning. The meaning of the biblical text can usually be clearly understood by the ordinary reader. You don't have to be a Greek or Hebrew Hebrew scholar to understand the Bible. It can help in some ways, but you can get it. Thirdly, scripture scripture should be interpreted in harmony with other passages wherever possible. Sometimes there is a dynamic tension in Scripture that we can't quite understand. And I always go back to Isaiah 55. God's ways are higher than my ways. Right? His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Often, heresy comes out of trying to make Scripture always fit into a box that I perfectly understand everything. So I don't quite understand the Trinity, so I'm going to say there's just one God and Jesus must be God Jr. Right? Jehovah Witnesses. Almost all cults and aberrant religions that have come out of the Christian faith have come out because we want to harmonize in such a way that there's no longer any difficulty. God doesn't do that. He won't fit in your box. But most of the time we can harmonize and understand Scripture from other Scriptures. Four, speculative inferences that contradict the clear teaching of Scripture should be disregarded. You look at stuff, it just doesn't fit the clear teaching of Scripture. You've got to disregard that. Meaning will not be rightly understood apart from a clear understanding of context. That's what we've been talking about all night. And then words and grammar must be rightly understood. So just some, some things that, uh, ways that you can begin in your own Bible study to, to deal even with difficult passages and learn. I want to encourage you guys to study your Bibles. You hear that all the time. Study your Bible, study your Bible. Like, I don't know how to study my Bible. Get this PowerPoint. That, that'll help you study the Bible. Get a good book, right, on studying your Bible. Start studying your Bible. Just don't read what John Piper said. He says a lot of good things. I like John Piper. I like Pastor Eric Mason. He says a lot of good things. He writes good books. He does all that stuff. But you need to study it for yourself. Whenever I'm talking to people who are wrestling with their faith, you know, I, I may have some, some what I think are some pretty dope apologetic arguments for them. But my last apologetic argument is always this. I want you to read the Bible. Amen. You go away and read Mark's gospel. Just read it. Just get into it. Because I just believe the Bible says that the power of the Holy Spirit is in the Word of God. If you start getting in that Word, God's going to get your heart. But, but for us as believers, that means not just a cursory reading. I did, you know, I did my daily bread today. I'm good to go. You need to be in the Word of God. You need to study that thing and get more tools in order to do that well. Let me pray and we're done. Father God, we thank you so much that... You have not left us hanging. Lord, that Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25 is not what should be normal for any of our lives. You haven't left us in a place where we say, the good that I want to do, I can't do. The bad thing I want to stop doing, I can't help myself. But Lord, you have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you've united us to the person of Jesus Christ in both his death and in his resurrection, in order that we might grow in sanctification and holiness and that we might be transformed more and more into the image of God, that we will be bearers of glory in this world for you. Lord, I pray 
that as a people, we will grow in, in our understanding and in our passion to know your word more. And Lord, that you would therefore mold us and shape us that next week and next month and next year and 10 years from now, if you tarry, that we'll look more like Jesus than we do tonight. So Lord, work in your people and, and develop those passions and those skills that we can come to know you for ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.